Psalm 1611. Open in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 1611. And uh, there is a present that is not talked enough about, especially at Christmas time. Psalm 1611. It is the present or the gift of the presence of God. Psalm 1611, a marvelous psalm, but this verse is just, just full of, of revelation, of truth, of the reality of the Christian life. Look at what he says here. David is writing Psalm 1611. Thou will show me the path of... How many of you had a friend or friends who actually were always getting you in trouble? They were showing you the paths of trouble. Maybe even the path of death if they got you smoking or if they got you on drugs or stuff like this. Bible says that God will show us the path of life in thy, what's our key word? Circle it. In your presence is fullness of joy. Fullness means you can't have any more joy. It fills you to the point where there's no more room. It's absolutely, you're full of joy at thy right hand. What does that describe? At the very side of God in his presence are pleasures forevermore if you believe that you will learn this and you will get this message if you don't believe that if you don't think that god has anything to offer if there's no joy in that relationship i'm going to try real hard to convince you that you're missing it but if you don't believe it then this message is going to go right over your head folks i'm going to try to remind you that getting close to the lord jesus is the greatest opportunity any of us have we have access to the throne of god we have access to the presence of god because of Emmanuel. So it's something, the presence of God is something everyone must desperately, desperately needs to go to Matthew now, Matthew chapter one, by way of review. You remember what we learned about the birth of Jesus. He was given two names here. You might remember the first name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, right? But what the second name now was. Emmanuel. Let's watch this. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. They were engaged to get married. Before they came together, she was found the child of the Holy Ghost. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. He's going to have to divorce her because She's pregnant, and it wasn't him. Verse 20. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name, here's our first name, Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth the son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So when we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, the baby in the manger was given two names right at the start. The first one describes what he does. Jesus does a lot for us, but the main thing he does is he saves from sin, doesn't he? That's what his name means. He, uh, Jesus described what he does. But his second name, Emmanuel, describes who he is. He is God with us. So both of those just move us out of, oh, it's Christmas. No, it's Emmanuel. This time is the time that reminds us God is with us. So <clears throat> did you know, as, as all the characteristics of God, omnipotence, that's all-powerful. Omnipresence, he's everywhere. Omniscience, he's all-knowing. Those are all in the Bible, but the best characteristic of God is Emmanuel, that he wants to be close. He wants to be with us. Um, let me ask you, what is a marriage? Right? What is marriage? It is not babies and bottles and bills and battles. It is the joining of two individual people physically and emotionally into one person. It is a closeness that is only for married couples. It is a shame that the devil is so good today at dividing marriages and dividing families and making people who live under the same roof feel like they're a million miles away from each other. That's not what God designed marriage to be, and it's not what life was meant to be. So I want you to understand, God didn't design marriage so that two people 
who are supposed to be together, they're supposed to be one person uh, in that family. Uh, he did not design it to be like a lot of families are today. And he didn't design the Christian life so that us and God are a million miles away. Because if I asked you today, how close do you feel to God on a scale of one to 10? A lot of people would say four, three, two, way away from God. And that's not how God designed it. He designed us to be close to him. As a matter of fact, all of God's efforts throughout all of time are for one goal, to dwell with us. Revelation chapter 21. Let's go to the right. I showed you this last week, but it's worth seeing. Revelation 21 and verse 3. This is way out in the future. But it shows this is God's goal. This is what God is working towards. And he actually, how many of you hear the word? Do you hear the word history? Do you know what history is? It's his story. This is the work of God. All of history is the work of God from start to finish. And he's worked, he worked himself into his own story so that things would work out right in the end. Verse 3, chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a great voice, a very loud voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God ever after. So there's a big problem, though. Wouldn't you agree? That's God's goal, but few people experience it. Few people actually experience the closeness of God because of one three-letter word. What's the three-letter word? Sin. You know, sin is that awful, dreaded, negative word. Nobody likes to be called a sinner. Nobody likes to be pointed out what they're doing wrong, but it is our problem, folks. You know, I... I, I just for time, we looked at it last week. Last week, Isaiah 59 says that there's a problem between us and God, and it's our sin, our iniquities have made a separation, a gulf, even a wall between us and God who loves us. Sin has, has drastic effects. I mean, somebody talks about the effects of smoking on the body, the effects of, of uh, a disease on a body. Well, the effects of sin on the body Right off the bat, it separates us from God. Secondly, it numbs us. The more you smoke, the less you cough. You ever notice that? Until you're smoked for 30 years, then you can't stop coughing. But the first puff of that cigarette, how did you feel? You turned green. You thought you were going to choke. But the more you smoked, the more you got used to it. That first drink you took, I mean, it sent you into a dizzy there. But the more you drank, the more you're able to handle Sin has a way of numbing you so that you have to have more and more to get the same buzz. It numbs us. I can tell when somebody is not walking with God, they're not in the Bible, they're not praying because they're numb to Christianity. They don't, they don't miss it. Uh, it sears our conscience. If you've ever burned your hand on the bottom of a, I know you men have never done this, but burned your hand on the bottom of an iron. <laughs> that, that, that skin that gets burned it, it doesn't feel the same after that. You keep burning that area and the, the feeling goes away. And the stuff that you watch, if you keep watching it, it removes all the guilt. You don't feel guilty anymore. Sin is a way of burning out our conscience and it ruins us. Just the effect of our society. The more sin is, is rampant, the less there is of real love, the less there is of life. It ruins us. So would you really, I mean, I'm asking this 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 time, like I did last week, do you want to enjoy Christmas this year? You've got you to understand Christmas is all about God's presence. That's it. it is, I, I, there's nothing wrong with giving gifts. There's nothing wrong with receiving gifts. That is absolutely a joy at Christmas is watching somebody open a gift, having gifts because of Christmas. But that is not Christmas. Christmas is about God's presence. And the point being that that baby in a manger shows the world how to get access to God's presence again. And when we look at, the, at, the, at, the, at what Jesus did his whole life, he even, he, as we're going to learn a little bit this morning, is he shows us how to keep close to God. People need to know what they're missing. Christians need to experience the fullness of the Spirit again today. And we need to learn how to walk in that fullness every day from here on. So I want you to, to enjoy Christmas, I want you to seek and yearn and, and uh, uh, want the presence of Christ this Christmas because it is so easy to miss God's presence. Go to John 
Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. I'll be honest with you. I'm glad you're in church, but Jesus Christ could move uh, right beside you. He said, where two or three are gathered together, where is he? I'm in the midst. And he could be working right along with everybody else, and you not even know it. He could just pass right by you. How many of you remember the, the, uh, the time Jesus was going through, uh, coming out of Jericho, and there was a blind man on the side of the road. His name was Bartimaeus. And as Jesus passed by, do you know what Bartimaeus did? He didn't wait for Jesus to notice him. He yelled out, he says, Jesus, over here. Hey, have mercy on me. He wasn't going to let Jesus pass by without doing something for him. And it's too easy to come into church and to be like in a revolving door and go out the same. You can miss the presence. If he promises to be here with us, don't miss it. On one, verse 10, he, Jesus, was in the world. He was here. And the world was made by him. Every atom and molecule and cell in the world knew him not. He even came into his own people and his own received him not. You can so easily miss Jesus in all your busyness. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with missing the Son of God in your life? Let's pretend uh, Amanda and Hannes were here this morning. And Nico and Joy are here. So they came this morning, and I was just thinking there, wouldn't it have been awful if Nico and Joy arrived? And Amanda's on her phone. Oh, well, we'll get dinner here in a little while. And Hannes is working some tool. And he says, oh, nice to see you. And Nico and Joy have traveled all the way from, from the States. I forget where they're living. They're in Texas, aren't they still? Or in Georgia. Georgia, yeah, that's right. And they came all the way tired, and people are too busy for their presence. Wouldn't that have been an awful homecoming? I wonder how Jesus feels. It's too easy to miss him. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves. See if Jesus is in there because you might be missing him. Now, um, I want to give you an example of missing the Father's presence out of the blue. Out of I bet you didn't know Christmas was in this chapter. Luke chapter 15. Go back a few pages. Luke chapter 15. And Jesus tells us a story of two young men who overlooked their relationship with their father. Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. When we read about the prodigal or the rebellious son in Luke 15, we usually focus our attention on which son? On the prodigal, on the rebellious son. We always fall and we usually associate ourselves with the younger son. Verse 11, Luke 15 and verse 11. And he, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 12, And the younger of the two said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto him them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. You know what you're reading about? A lazy man. This guy didn't work, want to work for his money. He only wanted his father's money. He, he wanted his father's inheritance in cold, hard cash now. Okay, Can you imagine having a child like that in your home? So he demanded his inheritance. He wanted half of his father's money right then and there. He's not even willing and wait, to wait for his dad to die. Here's the truth. To that son, the dad was already dead. Are you following? There's no relationship between that son and his father, is there? Not only a lazy young man, he's a worldly man. Look in verse 13 again, and not many days after, the younger son, he didn't take very long before he packed up everything, gathered all together, and he took his journey into a far country. He wanted to get as far away from home as possible. And there wasted his substance with riotous, riotous living. You know what he thought? He thought the world was out there. He thought the, the world out there was where fun was. Where, where pleasure was, where, where life was. It's so much better than what home offered. So he began to waste and squander all of this newfound wealth and inheritance on the extravagant and extreme living. I mean, I, I can just see him buying the most expensive clothes 
the brightest and most beautiful shoes. He lived in, on, on the richest of foods and drinks. He was with women after women after women. Later on, we find out the whole village that, that those two brothers and that father lived in, that the, the, uh, the life of that young man, as far away as it was, news got back about how he had been living. He had, he was, he had wasted his money on harlots and on traveling. Here's a guy who just, with all the money he had, he went anywhere he wanted to go. He was really living now, wasn't he? He found life, didn't he? Or so we thought. Verse 14 says, then troubles came. And when he has spent all, you know, please beware. Most people who win the lottery regret it. Now, not everyone. Some of them have learned over the years to get a financial advisor and to not spend all the money. But if you read about the first decade of lottery here, all those lives they spent, and, and uh, people, movie stars who make a lot of money, they need a lot of money because they spend it like sieves. When all the money was spent, verse 14, there arose rose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. He went and he joined himself to a citizen of that company and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Stop there for a second. He spent all, right then was when famine hit. Famine didn't hit when he had the money. <laughs> Timing always. I wonder who's in charge of the famines. I wonder who's in charge of the pestilences. Anybody want to take, oh, that's a devil. Not always. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, folks. Here's a guy who has to learn that there is always a high cost to pay when you try to love this world. This young man lost absolutely everything. Not only did he waste his money, I guarantee you he was robbed at different times. You see, when you have money, everybody wants your money. He was stripped down to nothing, and that is a good thing. When we see our kids, When we see our kids get themselves into trouble, mom, dad, do not bail them out every time. Don't even, don't, don't rush. Let them sit there for a while. The best thing that happened is for the government to stay out of their lives, for them to not get on welfare, for them not to get a penny, and for them to have nothing except a desire to need home and need God. And our generation, the last three generations, I believe, going back, have not needed God because there's always mama. There's always the government. There's always a friend. There's always somebody who's compassionate. And there's nothing wrong with having compassion. There's a time to have compassion. But we have sometimes too much, especially for our own children. I told my sons, you go into jail. You're sitting in there until I decide to get you out. And it may not be for a long time. I do not want them to think that dad's there as their genie. And neither is God. And the government has taken the place of God. In people's troubles. So here's this young man. Trouble came and it was good for him. Because troubles change you, don't they? I mean, they say a baby will change you when you have a baby, amen? But I don't see that. But I do know troubles will change you. And he ends up doing the lowest things imaginable. He is alone, verse 15. He goes on and says, And he went and he joined himself to a citizen of the country and he sent him to the fields to feed what? This man is a Jew, and yet he's feeding pigs, verse 16. And he would fain, he would barely have filled his belly, not with the cobs, not with the corn, not even with the slops from the master's house. He is chewing on and trying to get nourishment from the husks, which is the outer um, uh, husk of the ear of corn. That's all he was able to fight away from the pigs. He would fain fill his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave to him. He's absolutely humiliated. He has worked himself to where he's fighting over what pigs don't want to eat. And it was then that something wonderful happened. Look at the next verse, verse 17. First part, and when he came to himself. Listen, you want a miracle? I, I pray for people when they're in health problems, I pray for healing. When people are in financial problems, I pray for an open door for them to get a job. 
for the bills to be forgiven. I pray for miracles. I pray for, but the greatest miracle of all is when a man comes home. When a hard-hearted, wicked, selfish, self-centered, and I'm speaking of myself. Don't sit there and think I'm thinking of you, although I should. <laughs> but when a man wakes up and smells the coffee, it says when this, when this young man came to himself, what does that mean? We'd say the penny dropped. The light came on over his head. When he woke up, when he was able to realize where he was and what he had done to himself, this young man didn't blame anybody except himself. Amen. And for the first time, he saw four things. He saw poverty. You know what I find? Pride in people. They will not look at how poor they live. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, he talks to a church called the Church of Laodiceans. He said, you're so wealthy. You've got so many things. You've got um, uh, so much honor of the world, yet you are poor and you're wretched and you're blind. And he's talking to Christians. They don't even know the poverty that they're in. He sees his poverty. He sees pigs. What's he, who's he fellowshipping with? That's the only company he has. He sees the long, stupid path that he has taken away from his father's house. <clears throat> but he saw a place that he could return to. He knew he could go home. You know, that's why I love Christianity. Because Christianity shows, I don't care how far away you've gotten, you can come home. And that's when he decides to go home. Keep reading in verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 17, it came to pass. And when he came to himself, sorry, he said, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. That's when he decided to go home. It's scary and humiliating. Is that what? And you know what? It is humiliating to go to your wife and say, I'm sorry. I did wrong. I said wrong. I, I... You know what goes through a man's mind? Everything that goes through a woman's mind. That is, well, you pushed me. <laughs> we always try to deflect fault. But this young man said, I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to take all the blame. Amen. Keep going. Uh, well, just hold it. He... Um, he, as scary as humiliating as that was, he was going to go back home. He didn't have any idea what was back there. He didn't know if dad was upset at him still. He didn't know if his father would even accept him. It would have been terrifying. I'm sure he's going over and over in his mind how to talk to his dad. I'm sure he went over and he practiced going, Father, uh, I have sinned against heaven and you. Maybe that's a little bit too fast. Father, and I'm sure he's going over and over. How am I going to convince my dad to take me back? He's afraid that his father's going to say, I don't want to see you. You can stay out in the barn for all I care. Just don't come into my house again. He's afraid of what's going to happen. So he's going over and over what he can do to convince his father to take him. All he knows is to be a servant in his father's household was better than starving in the world. Yet, what was it like when he came home? Look at verse 20. And he arose. And he came to his father. Question, did he go to his bedroom and check and make sure he was still there? Did he go to the kitchen and get him a meal? Did he go? Where did he go? Where was he going? To a person. I want you to see this story is throughout the Bible that he did not seek. He went away seeking things. He now is coming back. Well, I forgot to show my picture. How he lived for those last year or whatever. But. When he, when he came home, what was he looking for? His father. And guess what happens? Verse uh, 20, again, and he arose and he came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, he was looking for him, and had compassion, and he ran. And he fell on his neck, the first rugby tackle. And he fell on his neck and he kissed him and kissed him and kissed him and hugged him. He was the biggest bear hug. Hey, who wouldn't give their right and left arms to have a dad like that? Who wishes that their dad, as firm and as, 
as faithful and as consistent as they may have been. Our parents probably did the best they could, but who, who couldn't want such a father who, when they see a wayward son, runs to them and hugs them and loves them and then says this. Look what he says. Of, um, verse 21, and the son tries. I mean, I can see the son on the, on the ground. The father is holding him and hugging him and kissing him on the cheek. And, and verse 21, his son says to him, Father, he's trying to get out the words, I've sinned against heaven in the nice sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father says, be quiet, be quiet. And he says to one of his servants, he says, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry, merry Christmas. Do you know what? When that young man came home, <laughs> what did he find? Well, his father gave him a beautiful new robe, didn't he? I bet it looked better than anything he had ever bought for all those years. Do you remember Joseph in the Bible, young Joseph? What did his father give him? A robe of many colors. This be like getting a thousand euro suit. Spring the best robe. He got a priceless gold ring put on his hand. He was given the nicest and the softest shoes. I bet you he walked home barefoot for hundreds of miles. And all of a sudden, they're slipping on the best, softest leather imaginable. I bet he cried. And he got the best dinner he had eaten he, than he had eaten in years. Huh. Kind of interesting, isn't it? All the things of Christmas we put a lot of emphasis on. Shoes, gifts, dinner. But you know what he got? See, all of that was side. What did he get? He got his father. He got his father back. He got the presence, the closeness with his father back. He got restored. He was no longer the son that was dead. He's alive again. This is the father who can look at his son and says, he's my son. Doesn't he say that there? Um, verse 24, this my son. Would you call that wayward son of yours good for nothing uh, um, thief? A whoremonger. If you ever came home, would you call him still your son? Probably you would. You know a little bit of the Bible to know. But do you understand how big that was to the son to be called the son again? And he was honored. He, he didn't honor what, he, what that son did. Do you know people say, well, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Yeah, but he didn't honor what they did. He just loved them for who they were. Never dying souls that needed a savior. His, when he encounters his father, he was honored. And most of all, he got joy. I'm sure for all the years he spent away from home, he had some fun. Uh, he had pleasure after pleasure. But the Bible says that the pleasures of sin only last for a season. So I think he got better than he deserved, didn't he? Better than all the shoes, all the rings, all the food. And I bet you as they put all that stuff on him, he's like, I don't care. I just want to hold on to my dad. I just want to hug my dad. I think the prodigal had kind of the great, uh, a good Christmas. That, that's kind of like Christmas, isn't it? You see that? All right, I'm going to show you something. Because now we need to look at another guy. Oh, I love that picture. We need to look at the older brother. Because he is no better. Mm. Verse 25, verse 25, it says this. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And normally you hear joy in the house. You want to run in and say, what's happening? Wow, what's going on? But as he comes, he asks, what's going on? Verse 26, he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, the servant, said back unto him, thy brother is come. And thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safely and sound. He's all healthy. Now, this young, this older son is completely the opposite of the younger brother. Think about it. The younger brother is lazy, good for nothing, selfish, carnal, young man. 
Here's this older son. He's completely the opposite. He is a hard worker. It is, he doesn't come home early. He works to the end of the day. He's working even without dad around. He doesn't have to have dad over his shoulder telling him what to do. He is a hard worker, working where he's supposed to be, faithful to his father. I believe that his father, ever, if he ever told him to do something, he knew his son would do it. He lived frugally. He never, this is a son who still was living at home. He did not waste his inheritance. He waited for his dad to die <laughs> before he would get it. And he was an all around good guy. Wouldn't you agree? And he comes in from the fields after a very long, hard day. And he hears music. He probably hadn't heard music in that home in a long time. You know, when there's, when there's a disaster in the home, when somebody leaves or when somebody thinks they're dead, it's hard to sing. But now they're singing. Now there's now the, the 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 food is spread out like a Christmas dinner. Verse um, well, he's told we read it. He's told that the long lost brother was home again, and it should have caused great joy. The brother should have went, "Woo! Let me go see him." Yet instead, he was angry. Verse twenty-eight, and he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore came the father out and entreated him. He tried to pull him in. He begged him to come in. And he answering said unto his father, Lo, I want you to hear these words through clenched teeth. Because this man, this young man is angry. Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed, transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet you never gave me a kid. Ooh, who's he mad at? Ooh, he's mad at Papa. He's angry at his brother. He's basically angry at the world now. He says, you never gave me a kid, that kid being a fat calf, understand that, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy, thy son, not even call him his brother, this thy son was come, which has devoured thy living. He took all the money you worked for all your life and he devoured it with harlots. His little town heard about the lifestyle of his own brother. They were so ashamed. And yet thou hast killed him for him the fatted calf. I have to say this. He was not just angry. He was bitter, folks. How do you know he was bitter? Because he's comparing himself, all of his hard work with that good-for-nothing, loose-living boy called his brother. He's bitter because his, he's pointing out all the good thing he's done. He's never been praised for it. He's bitter, because, and, and, and that bitterness stops him from even going into his own house. How many men have times where they get so mad, I'm not even going to talk to that woman? Yeah, bitterness. He refused to go to his brother and welcome him home. He refused to believe that the prodigal deserved to even be home. You know what he forgot? forgot all that he had. I want you to see this verse. Look at verse 31. And he said, this is the father talking to his son. He said, he said unto him, son, thou art ever with me. You have me. And all that I have is already thine. It was meet. It was fit. It was proper that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. I don't have time, but that young, that older brother, young man, the older brother, is us, okay? Because, let me give you the sad truths of these two young men. Number one, they both were focused only on themselves. They, all, they both were focused on what they expected out of life. The, the prodigal son expected to have a good time. He wasn't having it at home, so he found it in the world. The, pro, the, the older son said, well, you never gave me a kid. We never celebrated like you're celebrating. They're both thinking of what they want. Both missed the greatest gift they already had. They already had a father. They already had the best father you could ever have. Who, when it came time that the younger son said, I want my inheritance. Father said, okay. I mean, Wow. Both were a mess without that relationship with their father. Neither one of them, you wouldn't want to be married to either one of them, would you? Neither one of them are an example to be like, are they? Both of them were a mess because they didn't have a relationship with their father. The younger son rejected the relationship with his father. 
The older son neglected the relationship with his father. That's us. We have everything. We have Christ. And yet we neglect it. No wonder we get bitter. No wonder we, we get so upset at things. Because there's no, no contentment, no joy just in Emmanuel, in the presence of God. I'm going to talk to you about worship in a moment. At least one of the sons gets close, doesn't he? One of the sons is able to go and hug his father and won't let go. You know what's sad? We never hear the older son getting things right. That is his epitaph. That is the last word on that young, on that older brother. That he heard his father plead with him. He says, isn't it right that your son be able to, to come home and that we receive him and that we start over with him? Isn't that right? And you, what do we find? He says nothing. Those are some sad truths. Jesus ends the story without telling us what happens to the older brother, evidently. He never gets his heart right. The point is, there is a danger of missing the Father's presence throughout our life. Most people don't even miss the presence of God. They think they're okay. I'm fine. You know why they miss? They don't miss the presence of God? Because they don't realize what it is. Go to Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 in verse 2. Hmm. Prophet Isaiah is speaking of the Messiah coming. and doesn't say that he's going to be coming at this point all conquering and powerful. He says he shall grow up before God, before him, as a tender plant. Just the beginning. This is not the full product. When Jesus comes, you're going to see him tender as a root out of a dry ground. He's just the beginning. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. There are plenty of people on television and in the sports world, the music world, that if one of them came through that door, some of your mouths would drop. Your eyes would pop out of their socket. I mean, some of these guys, they have chest as big as a meter wide. Their form and their comeliness is just awesome. And yet Jesus had no form or comeliness. No form. There was no beauty about him that went, wow, he's a good looker. No. People didn't even desire him. Because, folks, listen, Jesus is not impressive like Mark Zuckerberg was thought of to be just up until recently. How about billionaire Bill Gates? Jesus, no competition. Jesus is not a mover or a shaker like Twitter founder Kevin Systrom. He's nothing like Justin Bieber or Katy Perry or Rihanna or sports stars like Cristiano Ronaldo. He doesn't have all the people following him on Twitter like Barack Obama and Donald Trump. No, Jesus is kind of just plain and simple in me. And so we miss him. You know, Jesus is not in competition with your PlayStation 1, 2, 3, 4, or 10. He's not in competition with that. He's not screaming at you like your friends are, pulling at you, pushing you to constantly do stupid things. No, most everybody throughout history has missed the presence of Jesus. Yes, they put the baby in the manger. I'm glad for the crib in Valencolic and in Cork. I'm glad for Ephesus on the Christmas star and on manger scenes, but they don't know the Jesus that it's all pointing to because it doesn't have much to it compared to what the world is offering. Um, the truth is you can be so busy doing and never worshiping. True worship is not religious. True worship is not church and ceremonies and buildings, investments and candles and gold and incense. That's not worship. True worship is enjoying the presence of God in every moment and trying to make that moment last. Repeat that. True worship is enjoying the presence of God in every moment, whether you're in a prison cell or a hospital bed or in a home where nobody talks to each other. True worship 
is enjoying the presence of God in every moment and seeking to spread out that moment as long as you can. John 4, 23 says, I don't go there, but the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. He doesn't care if you're in Jerusalem. He doesn't care if you're in Dublin. Doesn't care if you're in Valencali. Doesn't care wherever you are, will you worship him in spirit and in truth? That's what he wants. Probably think of yourself like the older son did, pretty good person, hardworking, successful. You're not like so many other loose living people. You don't really need prayer. I don't need to come on Wednesday night, Pastor. Really? I do. I have to. I don't really need to come to church like you do, Pastor. I mean, you seem to be addicted to it. Yes, I am. Well, you're supposed to be. You're no, I'm saved. Ever since I got saved, I wanted to live in church. I don't understand. I can't explain it. I just say this. Too many Christians feel like they don't need God. They're pretty good already. Don't you dare fall in that trap, folks. You don't need Christmas presents under the tree. You need the presence of God in your life like you don't know. Now, what do we do? What do we do? If I want the presence of God, okay, I need my volunteer. Tony here is going to be God. <laughs> On his throne, all right? If God is actually inviting you into his presence, if he is actually nearby, did you know Acts chapter 17 said God is not very far from anyone? People may feel like God is a million miles away. Paul says it even to the lost. He says God is not very far away. He's just over there. But there's something between us. It's called sin. Well, what do I do so that I can restore and have that relationship with God that I used to have when I got saved? Well, are you ready? Get rid of everything that even could be between you and God. It's called humbling yourself. It's called finding out what's there. Most of us never look at and do an inventory of what sins are plaguing us. You go to the, the, the doctor. I mean, you can't even go today, but say if you're able to go to the doctor and you say, I've got this problem. You know what the doctor's going to try to find out? He's going to find out what's the cause. Where is the problem? Is it, is it respiratory? Is it cardiovascular? Is it mental? He's going to get to the root of that thing. Well, you and I need to get to the root of the reason why when we read our Bible, nothing means anything to you. You see, if you come to church and pastors, passionate preaching only makes you yawn. It could be my poor delivery, but it might just be that there's something between you and God. Do you know, I've been in a church, I've been in several churches, where from the moment you go in, it has been so prayed in, and so people have gotten so right that when you come in, you have left this world. And it's an otherworldly experience where you don't open your mouth. You don't want to just go up to everybody and just treat everybody like, hey, everything's going around. But you're like, God's here. Not because it's a holy temple but because Jesus said where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And when the preacher sneezed, we all said, amen. <laughs> because we were hungry. What was God going to say to us? What did you want us to do? What do we give up? What do we get? Whatever. But we wanted God. Hey, whatever might be stopping that, if you have never enjoyed God, if you never enjoyed the Bible, if it's just soul winning and handing a track out doesn't thrill you, you need help. And what will give you such a thrill handing out a track is the presence of God with you. Jesus said, if you go and teach and baptize, I will go with you, Jesus said. And if you miss that, if you're waiting for a feeling, you got it backwards, go and he's with you. So what do we do? All right. You say, all right, there's this wall, Lord, I don't even know. So I need, all right, God, do you mind standing up and help me? I don't even know where to begin. And so the Lord, no, start with the top, yeah. Uh, the, the, I'll ask to say, Lord, show me what's between us. So the first one. Oh, man. Why did he have to bring that one up? You know, I call these, uh, there are different kinds of sins. Now go back. These are called comfort sins. 
You know what a comfort sin is? We don't mind having them. We like our bad attitudes. And we'll hold on to them. And your bad attitude, just like it drives a wedge between you and people, drives a wedge between you and God. And when you've got a bad attitude, now we all get bad attitudes, but when we don't mind it and we hold on to it, put it back up here, it becomes a block in a wall so that he and I cannot be together. So I know I'm going to take with that. God has just showed me I have a bad attitude. I'm going to repent of it. Please forgive me. I've had a stinking bad attitude. I've held it for too long, and I blamed everybody else, but it's my fault, and I'm sorry. That's repentance. Are you with me? One down. All right, what else? <laughs> oh, why did he have to bring that up? How many of you know what gossip is? Gossip is when you talk about somebody to make yourself look better. That's what gossip is. Gossip is not, oh, did you hear the news about Eric? Eric got this job and he was able to do this and praise God, amen. No, gossip is, you know, Eric's car is a mess and it's falling apart and his house is leaking and ha ha, I got a better house and my car is running better and probably his house is falling apart and his car is going bad. But anyway, but if, 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 if I'm talking about him, gossiping, it'll make me look better. That's gossip and that is wicked. I am sorry that I have let my tongue be used to tear down other people. Please forgive me. I don't want to have that between me and you. Two down. Is there more? <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought all we had to do was just say, dear Lord, forgive me, and it's all gone. No, 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 no. If you have a husband, if you have a wife, you know what we do? If I've offended you, I'm sorry. You ever said that? Slap yourself around the room because that is the most lame way of apologizing. God, if I've offended you, God, if... no, you know you have done wrong. You're just not willing to look at the things that you've done wrong and repent of them. This is not getting saved. Don't think that you have to do all this to get saved. But once you're born again and the Lord, we're, right, while we're preaching, and the Lord says, that's you, buddy. That's you, young lady. He's pointing out your sin. You need to go. Wow. Yes. Thank you. I didn't realize. I'm sorry. That's how it works. What's our next one? Willfulness. Have you ever been to Smith's Toys and seen a willful child? But I want that. Willfulness is when you have a will that crosses the will of God and you win. It's called rebellion. And willfulness, when you go against the will of God, when you do your own things, when you go your own way, all we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. That's willfulness. And that is the sin. Forgive me for seeking my own will. For doing not your will, but my own. And I'm sorry. If you tell me to do something, I want to be quick to do it. If you show me something that's wrong in my life, I want to be quick to get right. When you speak to me about something I need to be doing, I want to be quick to start doing it. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. <sighs> Is there more? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <sighs> what is the one sin that the world always points to Christians and crucifies us on? Hypocrites. Hypocrisy. Would any of us admit that we're hypocrites? No. Because that's one of the lowest things we can ever admit to. But if the Lord could ever show you how hypocritical you are, you know who knows you're a hypocrite? Your family members, your wife, your husband, your kids. The first person you need to get right with is God. The second one is going to be them and say, you know, I've been a hypocrite. I've had to go to people, my neighbors. I've had to go to uh, my coworkers when I worked. I went to, I went to my boss. I worked for a very, 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 very intelligent guy at a telephone company, and I couldn't bring myself to give him a gospel tract because he intimidated me, and he wanted to intimidate me. <laughs> he made me feel this small. He went to a Bible college. I mean, it was just... But anyway, there was one day when I had put leaflets in the bathroom, 
And so I had one sticking in my pocket. He said, oh, are those pictures? Because I we had just had Ruth. Ruth was just born. And so I was showing pictures of Ruth. But he hadn't seen me. He says, is that pictures of Ruth? I said, no, it's a gospel track. And he went, oh, no, more, more bathroom literature. <laughs> and I stopped right there. And the Lord <laughs> just dug out the sword of the Spirit into my heart. And I just looked at him and I said, I have to apologize. I try to give everybody a gospel track. But I've been intimidated by you, and that's my fault. His name was Corel Ehrlich. I said, would you, for me, just read this, whether you ever believe anything I ever do, but I've been a hypocrite. If I believe that Jesus died and was buried and rose again for sinners to save them from hell, I don't want you to go to hell. And I've been a hypocrite because I've been afraid to tell you that you need to get saved. Would you read this for me? He's just sitting there, and he took the track. But I had to humble myself and say, I've been a hypocrite. And I'm sorry. When my hypocrisy is exposed by my wife, and she's good at it. And that's why God gave her to me. Because she'll tell me who I really am. Whereas you guys all think I'm Mr. Perfect, right? Go on, say yes, amen, clap, go ahead, clap, clap, no. You're fired, you're fired. Anyway, <laughs> when God shows you a hypocrisy, Humble yourself and repent of it and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Is there more? What does that say? Secret hatred. Oh, wow. That's another one of those comfort sins. You know what a comfort sin is? It's a sin that you're comfortable with. It's I just don't like Marcus. Hi, Marcus. How you doing? I wish I could kill him. Oh, boy. You 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 got uh, a new PlayStation, or you got this? I'm so jealous of that guy. And a secret hatred. You can't hate anyone. You can't, folks. You can hate what people do. Somebody comes into my house. I'm not offering them a cup of tea if they come in through the window, okay? But I must love them. If somebody has to go to jail because they've done wrong, I'll go visit them in jail because I love them. I cannot hate anybody. And secret hatred is killing us. We have secret hatred of Christians. People won't even cross over and say hello to one another. And if I have any secret hatred and you show it to me, I apologize. And I repent of it. What else you got? That can't be a sin, is it? Laziness? Yes. As much as we hate it in others, God hates it in us. When there are things that we should do and we don't do it, not because we can't, but because we just don't want to. That is a sin. Because whatever God asks you to do and whatever is right to do is what you're supposed to do. If I am a lazy Christian, it is a wall between me and God. I will never talk to God because I'm too lazy. I won't read my Bible because I'm too lazy. It is a sin. If you're not busy, be diligent. The Bible says God will bless a diligent person. And I'm sorry for being lazy. There are times when I need to rest, and you told me I needed to. But there are times when I don't want to do nothing, and I let people go to hell, and I let gospel tracts sit, sit there for months, and I let things get done by others, and I just sit at home watching my stupid idiot box, and I'm lazy, and I'm sorry. What am I doing through all of this? Does anybody know what I'm doing? Does anybody see the size of this wall? Next one. Apathy. Apathy. Apathy is that thing that we don't admit to of, I just don't care. I just don't care? How can you say that? Well, that's a sin. And the only way to get rid of apathy is to confess it as sin. Because if you forsake it, can I have it? When I admit to it and I say, I listen to the preacher, but I only find fault with him because I really don't want to listen to the word of God. I really don't want to be in church. I'm apathetic. And I'm sorry, I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to be passionate. I want to be more excited than pastor. I want when I come to church to be a blessing. I don't want to pull people down anymore. I don't want apathy to be on my tombstone he here died somebody who didn't care i want to care and i'm sorry for not caring what else we got 
complaining, complaining. Oh, boy. You know, God, children of Israel were not killing each other, but God judged, and 23,000 died because they murmured and complained and griped. It's a sin to complain. And you've heard me complain. You've heard me complain about my wife. You've heard me complain about Christians. You've heard me complain about the ministry. You've heard me complain about bills. You've heard me complain, and I'm sorry because you've given me everything. And I'm sorry that I let my pride, my, my importance, and my want, and my willfulness, and all my other sins make me think that you're not good to me. And I want to, I want to tell you, Thank you for being so good to me when I don't deserve it. I'm stopping complaining as best as I can. When I complain again, I hope I'm totally convicted because I want to be right with you. I put complaining behind me. What else we got? Mm -mm, mm -mm. Now, lust has got different meanings and all kinds of things. When you want to have something so bad, you're not happy until you have it. That's lust. We're very lustful. We're not happy unless we get a PlayStation 5. We're not happy if everybody else has got things on it. We're not. Lust is killing us. Bible says lust is idolatry. Do you know that? Covetousness, where I just have to have something. And there have been plenty of things where I've looked at and used my eyes to look at something, and I made it more important than my relationship with you. And if there was any, if there, and you, you bring stuff to my mind where I have, that has been the focus, whether it was a fear or a worry or a thing that I had to have and I was focused on, I couldn't focus on you. It was killing me and it came between us. And I want to be content with such things as I have because I want you. Let's go one more or two more or three more. What do we got? Oh, why did you have to mention that one? Stinking pride. Pride. You know, when you point to all the good things that you do, when you remind people, hey, I'm not that bad. Remember our, our older son, the older son. Would, would you agree he's pretty proud, pretty proud guy? Hmm. When you compare yourself with others that are not doing, as, doing what you do, not doing it as well as you, when you want everyone to notice what you have done, that's the devil's pride, and it builds massive walls between you and God. There are two big sins that they're talked about in the Bible over and over. One of them's pride, and the second one is the last one we're going to look at. I'll give you a moment to start thinking about what is the biggest sin that plagues Christianity? But I'm sorry for being proud. That's a hard thing to say because none of us like to lose our pride. That doesn't mean that you have no self-worth. It doesn't mean that you... Think that I'm trash. No, no, no. But in God's kingdom, you don't think of yourself at all. So next time you're all thinking about yourself and how nobody's appreciating you and nobody's noticing you, go, that's pride. And I'm sorry. Go on. It's getting heavy, huh? Oh, man. I wouldn't want to be a young lady trying to find a man who hasn't been eat up with pornography today but it's not just men who are eat up, eat up with it if you've got a problem with pornography it's got to be dealt with because all that stuff goes in your head and never leaves and if you tolerate that and you cultivate it and you leave it there to germinate and to spread and to grow and to pull you deeper and deeper in you will only walk away farther and farther away from god you cannot be close to God and have pornography in your life. Does that make sense? There are enough pictures I've seen in my lifetime. I, I will not honor my past, but I remember the first time somebody showed me their dad's magazine that they found. I was no older than nine or ten. I can remember the pictures in that magazine still to this day. And my pull, my flesh loves this like anybody else's, man, especially men. And when the Lord brings up a past picture, the Holy Spirit says, 
You better clean up that past, that stuff in your life. And you go, yes, sir, Lord. I'm not going to act like it didn't happen. I got to confess it and forsake it and say, I'm sorry, God. I'm, I'm not there. I don't live there anymore. But I don't want to. I want to make sure I stay away from that. And if that ever does croach upon me, God, give me wisdom to talk to my wife. Give me wisdom to talk to the pastor. Give me wisdom to get help because the devil wants me to keep it a secret. And if I bring it out in the light, guess what happens? The devil goes, I'm gone. And you get the victory. But you've got to confess it. Keep going. Oh, there's only two more. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's not a sin, is it? Is that a sin? It is when you're so busy, you can't get up and read your Bible in the morning because you're so busy. Oh, but I got to get the kids ready. Of course you do. Oh, but I got to get dinner ready. I know. But you have the same 24 hours I have. You have the same 24 hours Jesus had. And he got up a great while before day and he prayed because every day of Jesus's life was busy, but he never was too busy to spend time in the presence of his father. So busyness can become a sin. And there are times when I'm in the ministry and I'm so busy, I don't get to spend time with God. I'm spending time with people, which is a good thing. I'm spending time in the field, working where I'm supposed to be working. But I haven't spent any time with the Father. And when I have gone days, weeks, long time without really in the presence of God, I need to confess that and say I'm sorry. But there's one more, one more. Of, the, of all the sins that I studied, the two worst are pride and bitterness. They're the most destructive. Pornography is destructive, I'm not going to doubt. But bitterness. People need to, people who've hurt you, hurt you need to apologize. Yes. They need to make things right. But you have no God-given right to stay bitter or even get bitter. Let me show you. Make a statement here and I'll be done. Most people are bitter against someone. Most people in this room are bitter against. There's somebody that you're bitter against. And you don't like to think about it. You don't like to meditate on it. You don't want to admit it. But there is a bitterness in your heart against at least someone. Every one of us have somebody. that we're, I, when I got, when my dad left when I was 12, I never wanted to be in his presence another day. When he would come and pick us up for the weekend, I would sit in the car and I wouldn't talk to him. And we'd go for dinner. He'd take us to, the, to his house and he'd try to play with I and my brother and my younger sister. And I just didn't want to talk to him. I kept that up until I got saved. That was when I was 12, when I was 17. And I got saved and would go to be with my dad. I would go quiet. You hurt mom. You hurt me. You hurt my younger sister, my younger brother. Dad, I. I don't want to be around you. That was my attitude. And then a preacher preached a message on bitterness. And it was the most important message of my life. And for an hour, he broke every part of my heart. And he said, God cannot and will not use you until you forgive and until you get rid of every last root of bitterness. And until you get rid of it, God's going to stay back and let you just flounder and you will never enjoy the Christian life. You will never enjoy church as long as you're bitter. Do you know bitterness when you leave it there grows. It's like weeds. It never gets better. It only gets worse. It is unresolved anger at an unchanging problem. My dad never came home. My dad never made things right with my mom. It was an unchanging problem. And so I got angry, and I couldn't resolve it. I couldn't fix it. And bitterness, and, and that anger became bitter. That older brother, was he bitter? You better believe it. And notice what it cost him. It cost him the relationship with his father. Okay. If I could conquer that. If I could just conquer that. If I could actually put how people treated me and all the things that I feel and I hurt, if I could just put that behind me, I would never let you go again. How many of you want to have that? Or how many of you still want to have that? Let's stand. Let's bow in prayer.
you can sit down now. Stand with me. Would you bow in prayer? Nobody looking around. James 4, 8 says this. Draw nigh to God. You know what the Bible says? He will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, though, first. You got to get some things right. You got to piece by piece, whatever. And you can't deal with it all at once. Whatever the Lord shows you, I asked Tony to show me a sin. And because we're ignorant of our own sins, but when you become aware of it, right then and there, right now, will you confess to God? God, you pointed out out of those 12, I don't know if there are 12 or 13 sins, out of those 12, eight of them were me. Well, good, you got eight things to confess, to forsake, right then and there and say, Lord, I've held on to them. I've been comfortable with them, and I don't want them. I repent because I want you. I want Emmanuel. I want your presence. I want Christmas to be the best Christmas ever because I got all that stuff out of the way, and I just want you. Father, I, I ask you to please bless your people this morning with the realization that there is such an opening to a relationship that even most Christians have never experienced. Next week, we'll talk about the to practice the presence of God, to enjoy the presence of God. But until then, we got to clear some things out of the way, and I pray you would. Don't let anybody go out of here the same. Don't let anybody go out of here saying, well, none of those things I've got a problem with. I guarantee you. God dealt with at least one thing in your life this morning. And then later on, he'll deal with another one. Later on, he'll deal with another one. Let him humble you. I just pray you want to come all the way home. Father, I pray again that you would just open eyes and hearts. And this morning, um, we would have the best Christmas ever. In Jesus' name, amen.